Good morning. Welcome to Grace Bible Church. We just uh, last week had our our winter retreat, and we're back. Also, also this is my first Sunday officially, if you will, as your full-time pastor. And so I'm very thankful uh, for those of you who know the, the trek that we've been on. Uh, it's a very, it marks an, an incredible day to be here with you uh, as your pastor. So I'm thankful for that. I'm also thankful that we survived the holidays. We have, I'm also very thankful that we completed 2020 and 2021. You don't get that, do you? We were soundly defeated. We, <laughs> 2021, get it? Uh, it's a dad joke. We survived, and we look with hope toward the new year. But 2021, as you know, has started out with a bang. As Christians, those of us who are in Christ, we have a great hope. We can have, and we do have, a great hope for the future, regardless of all that's going on around us. Amen? We have nothing to fear. Nothing. There's nothing to fear, except for the Lord, right? We just finished up this winter retreat, and I just want to say that for those of you who are able to attend, make sure to grab someone and let them know all that they missed. Um, let them know. I'm, I'm hopeful that we can make that retreat an annual occurrence. I'm optimistic that, that many of you will be able to attend next year. Well, today we return to our study of Ephesians. A few weeks ago, I introduced the fourth of five walk statements which form the structure of Ephesians chapter 4 through 6. The se- this section of Scripture uh, in Ephesians 5 is especially crucial to understanding how to live in our world today. I have talked to several of you, and I know you agree that we are walking into, I believe that we're walking into very dark times and very deep shadows. We scarcely know what will happen next. It appears that each day, if you read the news, if you look at the news, every day brings worse news than the day before. Today's events would have scarcely been believable even a few months ago, amen? How many... How many of you foresaw the Capitol building being stormed? Just think about that. Just think about that. Yet, just a few days ago, we saw a bunch of hooligans strolling down the hall, halls of Congress as if they were supposed to be there. We looked in horror. We look in horror. I do, and I know many of you do as well, at our leadership in Washington, yet those people are the ones that we've elected as a people. And in doing so, I believe that we have invited God's judgment. When God wants to judge a nation, according to John Calvin, he gives them wicked rulers. But as we approach these dark shadows, we must answer the following question. How shall we live considering the world which surrounds us? Well, according to the Apostle Paul, In this chapter, chapter 5, especially in verses 6 through 10, we must, we must follow two simple commands which will ensure that we're walking in a way that pleases our Lord. You must first avoid the deception of the disobedient. And secondly, you must avoid the darkness by walking in the light. Now let me pray, and I'm going to read our passage for this morning. 
and then we'll get started. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning. Again, we pray for this sermon, pray for its delivery, pray for its content. Father, I pray that it would be powerful, not because of me, not because of my personality or anything, anything like that, but it would be powerful because of it's your word. Father, I pray that it would be used for your glory. We know we've been promised that your word will not return void, and we've seen that over the history of this church. We thank you and praise you for what you're doing among us. We pray that you will continue to work. We pray for your Holy Spirit to use this message to grow your people. In Christ's name, amen. Let me read from Ephesians chapter 5 this morning. Starting in verse 1. Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. But immorality or any impurity or greed must not even be named among you, as is proper among saints. And there must, must be no filthiness and silly talk, or coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. For this you know with certainty, that no immoral or impure person or covetous man, who is an idolater, has an inheritance in the kingdom of God, or the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedient. Therefore, disobedience, therefore do not be partakers with them. For you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. Do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead expose them, for it is disgraceful even to speak of the things which are done by them in secret. But all things become visible when they are exposed by the light, for everything, becomes everything that becomes visible is light. For this reason it says, Awake, sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Now, I'm sure that many of you have watched the show, the British science fiction program, Doctor Who. The Do Doctor Who series has generated a cult following over the past half century. The show depicts a, the adventures of a, an extraterrestrial doctor who appears to be human. This doctor goes around exploring the universe in a, in a spaceship called the TARDIS. With various companions, the doctor combats foes and works to save civil civilizations, and he also helps people in need. Now, I want you to know his ship, the TARDIS, is a pretty sweet ship. It has the capability to travel throughout time and history, yet it appears as a British police box. It is small on the outside, but as many of you know, it has a vast interior. Now, these boxes were a common sight in Britain when the ser series first came on television in 1963. Now, speaking of that, <coughs> the first episode was delayed by the news coverage of jo John F. Kennedy's assassination the day before. Now, it's astonishing to me 
astounding to me that a series based on a time-traveling extraterrestrial would run from 1963 to 1989, and then after a 16-year hiatus, it was then picked up in 2005 and is still, it, most of you, many of you may know, still running to the present day. You know, Doctor Who and time travel make me think of just how much things have changed in the past 58 years. Just think about someone living in 1963, time traveling to the present day. There are many things that would astound them, both for good and for bad. I'm sure that they would be amazed that while the cars of today are much safer, and in some cases are much more powerful, yet their overall design isn't really that different from 1963. We even, today, value many of the cars from that era as antiques, right? I, can't, I can imagine that most people thought we would have flying cars by now. I mean, even, even if you think about Back to the Future, they depicted a flying car by this point, right? Speaking of flying, what about jet airplanes? Again, the technology isn't that much different. Airplanes are much more numerous and efficient and quieter, but we certainly haven't approached anywhere near the speed of light. Now, I do believe they would be astounded by modern computers. Computers have been around for a while. The first electronic program of a computer was built in the 40s, and the progress has been nothing less than astonishing. Just consider personal computing. In 1983, the Apple Motorola 68000 Lisa had a grand total of one meg of RAM. By 2010, you could purchase a hard drive with three terabytes. Three million megabytes of memory. That's three million Lisas. By the next year, you could buy a 128 gig flash drive to put on your keychain. You see, that time traveler from 1963 would be even more astounded by the massive data centers which are currently recording every part of our lives, at least our digital lives. At this point, you can safely assume that every keystroke you make and every image you view, think about that, every keystroke you make and every image you view is being recorded by someone somewhere. How long will it be before our physical lives are being recorded as well? By the way, speaking of that, did you know that George Orwell's dystopian novel, 1984, is the current number one bestseller on the Amazon literary fiction list? I wonder why. The novel was written in 1949, 14 years before Doctor Who was released, and we've already established that our a 1963 time traveler would be amazed at the advance in computer technology. He would be even more shocked at the parallels between Orwell's book and, the re and real life in the 21st century. Do you know what he would even be more astonished by? The advancement of sinful behavior in our society. Just like cars and jet airplanes, he wouldn't be surprised by the sin. Man has always been sinful. But I believe that he would be astounded by the downward spiral of our society. As an example, right now, around 1.9 million babies are being aborted, or have been aborted, that is, in 2021 worldwide. That's around 125,000 murders per day. 
$45 million per year. 45 million lives terminated before they're even born. And today, as you know, abortion even seems commonplace. Did you know that the Roe v. Wade, Roe v. Wade was not passed until 1973, 10 years after our time traveler's life in 1963? Tragically, some would say that we've made a lot of progress in the area of, of abortions. After all, a woman doesn't have to resort to a backstreet alley to murder her baby, right? You know what saddens me the most about this? Those who call themselves Christians have begun to make the same, the same worldly arguments. You know, that legalized abortion keeps the woman from having to go to the back alley. Or, or what about rape? And what about medical issues? All those arguments that are made for the murder of all these babies. You know, did you know that the Kennedy family once held a pro-life position? Listen to this quote regarding the abortion issue by Ann Hendershot. She says this, At a meeting at the Kennedy Compound in Hyannisport, Massachusetts, on a hot summer day in 1964, the Kennedy family and its advisors and allies were coached by leading theologians and Catholic college professors on how to accept and promote abortion with a, quote, clear conscience. Now, it's not difficult to trace the evil that perpetrated by this family. They influenced, as you know, American politics for the last half of the 20th century. No doubt they contributed to the deaths of millions of countless, or countless, uh, that is, unborn babies. In the words of Al Mohler, he says this, The first lesson is that there will be th theologians who seem to be ever ready to find a way to subvert the teachings of their church even as they seek to remain in its employ, employ and trust. The second lesson is likened to the first, there will all ever be politicians who are looking for political cover and will gladly receive this cover from those willing to subvert their church's teachings. These lessons are by no means limited to the Roman Catholic Church. Al Mohler wrote that over ten years ago. You see, many evangelicals today are making the same arguments made by the Catholics in 1964. They're, they're trying to tell you that personally, oh, personally, I'm against abortion. I'm, I'm against it, but I can see reasons why you would have it. They hold their nose. I, I, just, I just hold my nose because legalization of abortion is for the greater goods of society. You know, legalized abortion eliminates those, eliminates those back alley abortions and allows a woman to choose her own destiny. You see, many in the church have surrendered to these popular, to popular positions. In other words, <coughs> many in the church are saying that evil has a good purpose. Sadly, I believe that we are, have arrived... I fully believe that we have arrived at the day of reckoning for our society and for the church. Sadly, the church's division has been revealed by several concerns. But especially in the past three to four years, we've seen uh, at least three concerns that have really ultimately revealed the church's division around these issues. The first one is Donald Trump 
The second one is COVID-19, and the third one is racial, increased racial tensions. Donald Trump has been especially problematic in, for the church, if you will, because his political acts have most closely aligned with conservative Christianity. He and his wife, Melania, are staunchly pro-life. Yet, as much as I agree with Donald Trump on that issue, it's clear that his personal life, his character, and his personality seem to be severely lacking. So you have to hold your nose to vote for him. Because, of, because, his, because what he says and what he does actually mostly close, most closely aligns with the church. And many have chosen the opposite. Some vote for third-party candidates, and more than a few have chosen to vote for the Democrat Party. They do this despite the Democratic platform, which, beloved, is demonstrably we can demonstrate that it is evil. So, what do we do if we want to please God in this wretched world? It's complicated. It's complicated. It is incredibly difficult to know what to do. Well, my mother used to say, the more things change, the more they stay the same. King Solomon says there's nothing new under the sun. You see, the Word of God contains the answers that we need. The Bible won't tell you whether or not you should support Donald Trump. It won't. But it will tell you how to make that decision. Today, as I said, we're continuing our study in Ephesians, which I believe is incredibly applicable to our current situation. At GBC, I talked to a couple of you before the, before the church, before church started. At GBC, we are committed to the verse-by-verse -verse exposition. Yet it always amazes me how the Bible can be applied to a modern context. I didn't choose this passage based on what's going on in the world. We're just here. And this is what happened. Going back to Ephesians, the church at Ephesus was struggling with their direction. In Acts chapter 20, we find that the Apostle Paul visited the elders as he, as he made his way to Jerusalem. Significantly, after he arrived in Jerusalem, he was arrested and jailed. He was accused of preaching against the Jews and the law. And he was also charged with bringing Trophimus and Ephesians, an Ephesian into the temple. And when Paul wrote this letter, he had been in prison for several years on these charges. We must recognize that he was specifically incarcerated for preaching the gospel to the Gentiles. Uh, the Apostle Paul was crucial to the spread of the gospel. In fact, he was an essential part of the whole enterprise, yet there he was in jail. The general had been in prison for five years. And you can only imagine how demoralizing that would have been to the troops at Ephesus. Most likely, many of them were ready to wave the, the white flag of surrender. They were inclined to give up. The Christian life was just too hard. Sound familiar? That sound familiar? Christian life is just too hard. Now, there were some in the church who were saying, we don't need to give up completely. We just need to change our methods. We just need to change our strategy. We just need to... Tweak our message. 
We, we, we should look a little bit more like the world. We should, hey, why, why don't we loosen up things a bit? So Paul, being the good apostle that he is, he hears these arguments from the church, and he's concerned. Therefore, he wrote this letter to remind them, to remind the church at Ephesus of all that they are and all that they have, all that they possess in Christ. You see, we forget that, right? When we're going through difficulty, we forget all that we have in Christ. So the best thing that we can do is to remember. And sometimes we have to, you know, hello, McFly. We have to be woken up. It's two references to Back to the Future, isn't it? I don't usually make movie references. The best way to, for them to fight against those who contradicted was for them to be reminded of all that Christ had done in saving them from their sins. So in chapter 1, he reminds them of the glorious nature of their salvation. He declares to them that they had been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies in Christ. They had been adopted as sons through Jesus by the Father. They were redeemed through the blood of Christ and forgiven of their trespasses. (coughs) They had been shown grace and mercy when they deserved wrath and judgment for their sins. And in chapter 1, verse 18, Paul Paul prays that their, their eyes would be enlightened so that they would understand the hope of his calling. Oh, that is of God's calling. He also prays that they would comprehend the riches of the glory of his inheritance, of his inheritance in the saints. He desperately, he desperately wanted them to grasp the power of God working through the church. It, it seemed quite the opposite. It seemed that the church was insignificant, that the church was maybe even dying. He was in jail. And yet Paul wanted them to understand that the, the church was the fullness or is the fullness of Christ in a lost and dying world. Still that way today. In short, Paul reminded them that they were saved. And that when they were saved, they were placed in Christ. They were sealed with the Holy Spirit. And they were raised up and seated with Him in the heavenly places. But despite their situation, they had been uh, granted unfathomable riches in Christ. Now there's another aspect of this letter that we need to realize and comprehend. When they were saved, they were made into a new creation in Christ. Fleshly distinctions were no longer valid. We, we recognize no one according to the flesh. And this truth is incredibly applicable today to, to our church today, right? Since many Christians are struggling with the questions about race. In Paul's day, it was the Jew versus Gentile question. Specifically, how could the Jews and the Gentiles coexist in the church? Well, the answer is they don't coexist in the church. I'll let that hang out there for a second. That might surprise you, and you may even disagree on the outset. I would argue that they don't coexist because they are to put those fleshly distinctions aside. But there's a problem. We both know, we all know, that when we're saved, we bring our cultures into the church. Now, you've heard, it, you've heard the saying, You can take the Jew out of Jerusalem, but you can't take Jerusalem out of the Jew? Well, maybe you haven't heard that one. But it is true nonetheless. Believe me, this caused great 
conflict in the church. And we need to take, so we need to take a moment and step back to, to think about this. Paul had preached this glorious gospel to the Jews and to the Gentiles. Some of them believed and they became new creations in Christ. Now Paul had been jailed for preaching that gospel. <coughs> On top of this, there's this fresh conflict in the church between Jews and Gentiles. So Paul writes this letter to remind them of their common faith. He admonishes the disobedience for their disobedient for their defiance. Now, I told you, and we're looking at the fourth of five walk statements which form the structure of the final three chapters. Now, I would argue that Paul, uh, that Paul commands them to walk in a manner worthy of, of their calling, which is the theme of these final three chapters. In other words, in 4 through 6, he explains what it means to walk in a worthy manner. The worthy walk is one of humility, gentleness, and patience. It is also one of unity and peace in the Holy Spirit. But the worthy walk avoids living like unsaved Gentiles in the futility of their minds. The Christian does this by completely forsaking the old manner of life and living according to the commands of Christ. We live in the renewal of our minds as new creations in Christ. We put away that old manner of thinking, and we walk just as Christ walked, and we love just as Christ loved, and we love each other, and we love Him. And in doing so, we're not to allow sexual immorality or uncleanness or greed to be named among us. We must realize that those who partake in these things will not have an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ. I didn't say it. Paul did under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. If you partake in these things, you will not have an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ. That is, if you persist in them. Yet, we must recognize that deceivers existed in the church. Therefore, and Five, chapter 5, verses 6 through 10, Paul gives these two simple commands, which will ensure that we are pleasing to the Lord Jesus. The first command is, you must avoid the deception of the disobedient. Look at your text in 5, 6. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Now, some commentators connect this phrase with the previous section. Now, the, the connection is pretty obvious with verses 3 through 5 because Paul told the church that these words, these, these words are not fit for, or these kinds of deeds are not fit for the church. The kind of words are not fit for the church. We're not to participate in silly talk and coarse jesting, but rather we are to use our words as, as an opposite, we are to use our words to give thanks to God. If we're giving thanks to God, we can't be participating in silly talk and coarse jesting. So in 5.6, he tells the Ephesians to avoid being deceived by these empty words. But I would also argue that this verse forms a transition in thought. Paul is certainly looking back, back to verses 3-5, through five, but I think he's looking forward to our response to these deceivers. Now, I believe these deceivers are unbelievers who have crept into the church. But some could be believers who have been deceived for a season. Paul makes the ultimate source of 
the deception very clear in the latter part of the verse. Now, what's happening is, unfortunately, these people think that worldly living is of no consequence to the church or to the Christian. Now, back to Ephesians 5, 6, we are to let no one deceive us with empty words. We are, as a church, we are not like the world, and we are not to be like the world. And anyone who tells us otherwise is speaking empty words. We are to let no one, whether outside the church or inside the church, deceive us into thinking unbiblical thoughts. Unbiblical thoughts that could be about the church, unbiblical thoughts that could be about the world, or even how the church relates to the world. As an example, as an example, the church preaches a ungodly, I'm sorry, the world preaches an ungodly unity that tells us to change what we believe. Undoubtedly, that's what these deceivers were doing in Ephesus. They were teaching a worldly unity. In our world, we see it every day. Critical race theory and intersectionality have been taught in the universities for years. These ideas have made their way into society and are making great inroads into the church. Most of us haven't even heard of those things up until the past, few, the past year or two. Maybe even less than that. But these ideas are antithetical to the gospel because they emphasize our differences. That's antithetical to the gospel. We are new creations in Christ. We are, we are new men and women in Christ. You see, they claim that the gospel is divisive. When in reality, the gospel brings unity within the church. But get this. But get this. The gospel, the true gospel, brings unity. But it divides the church from the world. And if there are worldly people in the church, it divides the true believers from the worldly in the church. And I think that's what we're beginning to see. The division, beloved, should be between the church and the world, not in the church. Although we know that they're wheat and tares, right? Now, the, the word translated deceive here means to mislead, probably intentionally. Empty words are words which are devoid of truth. They may sound good, but they're useless and empty. They, they were probably those among, there were probably those among the believers who had fallen back into their old ways, and they were walking like Gentiles. They were practicing immorality and filthiness and were greedy. They were probably trying to say that everyone has an inheritance and that there is no judgment upon those who practice evil. So you can have it both ways. You can have the inheritance, that's great, but you can also live like this. But Paul warns them not to participate. He says, don't participate. He he wants them to know the truth of the gospel and that the truth is in Christ. So that he wants them to know that they've been made into a new creation in Christ, having put off the old man, having put on the new. They are to avoid the deception of the disobedient. And believe me, they were there. And believe me, they were deceiving. And believe me, that there were people who were believers who were falling for it. And Paul says, no, avoid it. 
And the reason you avoid it is, look back at the last part of verse 6. He says, for because of these things, because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. It's a strong language. Paul wants to be clear that the wrath of God is a very real thing, and it is coming upon those who are disobedient. Paul says, because of these things, he's talking about those sins in verses 3 through 5, those who practice them. The immoral person, the impure person, the covetous person. These people have no inheritance in the kingdom of God, Christ and God. Let, do not let them deceive you. You cannot live in disobedience and expect to have an inheritance with Christ. We are not to partake in the deeds of darkness. That's, that's 5.7. Look, look forward to 5.7. Paul says... And 5.7, therefore, do not be partakers with them. We are not to join with them. We are to keep our distance from those who intentionally sin in this way. The idea here is being involved in any way with those deceivers. I just think of earlier with the, with the discussion on abortion. The reason I brought that up is because people who say abortion is okay are deceivers. They're trying to deceive. God says, thou shalt not kill. It's as simple as that. We are made in God's image. Everyone is made in God's image. Even the baby in the, in the womb is made in God's image. And that which is made in God's image, we shall not shed the blood of. And yet there are people in the church that are trying to say it's okay. It's not okay. It's deception. And according to verse 6, the wrath of God is coming upon those who would deceive, upon the sons of disobedience. And you don't want to involve your per yourself with a person who is under the judgment of God. And don't be deceived by their words. We can't, you can't have a harmless relationship with the world. And, and I'm talking about a James 4 type of relationship that we talked about a few weeks ago. James says, you adulteresses, you do, not, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility, is enmity, is hate toward God. <clears throat> Church, if you partake with the world, you will not avoid God's judgment. It's as simple as that. If you partake with them, your willful acts of disobedience will result in suffering God's wrath and judgment. That doesn't mean that you can't fail. That doesn't mean that you can't fall in for a season, uh, that that can't happen, and you come back and repent. I, I get that. That's good. I'm glad. I hope. I pray. But if you partake, and you continue to partake, you deserve God's wrath because you are disobedient and you have rejected His love. And in James's word words, if you are friends with the world, you hate God and you deserve His judgment. You know, many folks in the church struggle with a God, well, in the world too, struggle with a God who's wrathful, right? I, I agree with R.C. Sproul, who said, A God who is all love, all grace, all mercy, no sovereignty, no judgment, no holiness, and no wrath is an idol. End quote. reason why Christ died for us, right? So that we wouldn't have to endure His wrath. In the words of Jerry Bridges, Jesus didn't just die to give us peace and purpose in life. He died to save us from the wrath of God. 
end quote. If you partake with those who are disobedient, you are not in Christ. Now look at 5.8. Paul gives the reason. He says this, For you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. This verse goes back to chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. According to Paul, the believer was, was formerly dead in his trespasses and sins. The, the believer was formerly a nature, uh, by nature a child of wrath, even as the rest of the world. The, the, the believer was formerly under the judgment of God. Yet God. Yet God, being rich in mercy, made us alive together with Christ. He has raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenlies. Beloved, Jesus endured the wrath of the Father so that we would not have to. Think about that. I mean, that's what Paul's argument is. Think about who you are in Christ. How can you partake with these people when Christ has done so much for you? Again, in the words, the words of uh, R.C. Sproul are informative. Christ exposed himself not only to the unbridled hostility of angry men, but more significantly to the unmitigated wrath of God. End quote. Beloved, that is what Christ has done for you if you are a Christian. He, has, he suffered the wrath of the Father so that you wouldn't have to. And in Him, because, of his, because He's rich in mercy, he, he has transformed us and He has made us light in the Lord. You've been transformed. You're a new creation. The word translated light can refer to physical light. It can also refer to the character of and revelation of God. In Psalm 104, verse 2, it says that God is clothed with light. And Psalm 4, 6, it tells us that God is the source of light. I always think of the New Jerusalem, speaking of the eschaton. I always think of the New Jerusalem, which will have no need of the sun or the moon. You know why? Because the glory of God will light it, and the Lord Jesus will be its lamp. How amazing will that be? Christ is the light of men, and we ourselves as Christians have been made into the light of the Lord. We're salt and light, and as such we're, we are to let our light shine before men in such a way that they see our good works and glorify the Father. question is, how can we do this if we're partakers with those who still are still in the darkness? Brethren, do you think of these things as you interact with the world? As you think of compromising and what the truth is? I'm telling you, 
the truth, we're going to be marginalized even more and more. And you're going to have more pressure on you, more and more pressure on you to capitulate, to change what you believe, and to match the world, for, a, for that world to unity. You may even have to do so for a paycheck. What are you going to do? Have you thought about those things? Are you even slightly concerned when you participate with the world? I'm especially talking to you young folks. I, I get it. I've been there. The world has so much to offer, right? It's, it's easy to flirt with the world. It's easy to give yourself completely to the world. But I'm here to tell you, you can't have it both ways. Either Christ has bore the wrath of the Father on your behalf, or you will endure His wrath throughout eternity. So how do you avoid the deception of the dis- disobedient? Well, that's, our, that's Paul's second command. You must avoid the darkness by walking in the light. Look back at your text. He says in verse 8 at the end, Walk as children of light. This is that fourth walk statement of the, in the final, these final three chapters. We are to avoid the deception of the sons of disobedience by walking as children of the light. In other words, we are to be in action what we have already made, been made to be. We have been made to be children of the light. Now we are to go walk in the light. I want you to notice the interplay here. You are either a son of disobedience a child of wrath, or you are a child of the light. There's no, there's no in-between here. As believers, we are, we are light. Therefore, we are to act like the light. In other words, our lives are to reflect the glory of God in all that we do. You might say it this way. We're to be little reflectors of God's glory. That was Jesus' point in Matthew 5 I quoted earlier. In, in Christ, we are the light of the world, and our light must shine like a city set upon a hill. We must walk in such a way that the light of God's glory becomes obvious to all who see us. And you know it, and I know it. The darker the world becomes, the brighter our lights will shine. <clears throat> if, we try to, if we try to be like the world, we're, we're dimming that light. We're dimming that light, and we become more like the darkness. But the more we walk in Christ, the brighter those lights will shine. And our light, as it shines in a dark world, cannot be hidden. As a matter of fact, our our light will drive the darkness away. In the words of Erasmus, he says, Give light and the darkness will disappear of itself. So you might be asking what the light looks like. What, what it looks like to, to walk in the light. Well, at this point, Paul answers that question by giving us the fruit of the light. He says in verse 9, For the fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. It's a parenthetical thought. He wants them to know 
He, he tells them to walk in the light, and he wants them to know what that looks like. So he tells them that the fruit of it, this word translated fruit, it means literally fruit of the field. In this case, it means the result of, of your actions, whether good or bad. If you're walking in darkness, you, you're going to produce bad fruit. If you're walking in the light, you'll produce good fruit. In this case, Paul gives us the fruit produced by the light. So we can inspect our fruit and see if it is of the light or of the darkness. Said another way, put it another way, these fruits are tests of our true faith. These are works that cannot be achieved by the flesh. Paul says that the, the fruit of the light consists in all goodness. In other words, it encompasses all that is good. Now the question is, how do we know something is good? <coughs> well, the standard is God and His character, right? We know from His Word that God is good. David says in Psalm 145, 9, The Lord is good to all, and His mercies are over all His works. James says in, in James 1.19, Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. So, if God gives it, it is good. That's, that's James's point. And the reason why is because God is good. It's interesting and informative that in times of trials and suffering, we are tempted to question what? What are we tempted to question when we go through trials? God's goodness. We're tempted to say, why are, are you putting me through this? This can't be good. That's what, really, that's what James's readers were doing, but James reminded them that God is good and will never send anything bad upon those who love Him. This is in the character of God, and this is, by the way, and going back to Paul's point, this is, as children of light, to be our character as well. <clears throat> Think about it. Going back to times of trials and suffering, when we're hurting, our tendency is to lash out against those who are hurting us. You, you, you get that, right? When I'm hurting, my tendency is to lash out against those who are hurting me. But is that good? No, that's returning evil for evil. That must not be our reaction. The good... And godly reaction is to walk in love as we walk in the light. That's interesting to note that James in James 1.18 goes on to say, In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. You, I think you need to understand that connection. How do we know that God is good? How do we know how to walk in goodness? We study the word of truth. The Word of God which teaches us God's goodness and teaches us to reflect the glory of His goodness by walking in the light, by being good, by being truly good. Look back at your text in 5.9. Before you do that, I wanted to say that according to John MacArthur, goodness finds its fullest and highest expression in that it is which in that which is <clears throat> in that 
is that is done willingly and sacrificially done for others, meaning that that quote got messed up, but that's okay. You get the point. The the our goodness when we are when we are truly being good, it finds its highest expression in doing things sacrificially for others. In First Thessalonians five fifteen, Paul says, and I said it earlier, see no see that no one repays evil for evil but always seek after that which is good for another and for all people. According to Paul, then, this is, this is to be our way of life. And according to, to Paul, also righteousness and truth are also a fruit of walking in the light. If we are in the light, then our deeds, what we do, will be righteous. We know this to be the truth because in Christ we have been imputed the very righteousness of God. Now, we know that from the Scriptures that God is a righteous God. Deuteronomy 32.4 says, The rock, His work is perfect, for all His ways are just, a God of faithfulness, and without injustice, righteous and upright is He. Psalm 145, verse 17 says that the Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his deeds. The Lord is near to all who call upon him, to all who call upon him in truth. That goes back to that word truth. goes back to the word of truth. Yet while God is righteous, we are not. We're not naturally righteous. Romans 1, verse 17, for in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. And he says this in verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. We, beloved, are unrighteous, therefore we have a major problem. But God has the answer in that He has imputed the righteousness of Christ to us. That's 2 Corinthians 5.21. He made Him a new no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the very righteousness of God in Him. So, beloved, the point is we have been made righteous, therefore we are to walk in righteousness and truth. We are to reflect the truth of who we are in Christ. John puts it together in this way. In 1 John 1.29, he says, if, we, if you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone also who practices righteousness is born of him. So the way we know we're born of him, the way we know that we're children of light, is that we practice righteousness, and we do so according to the truth of the Word of God. We are, we are to do so according to the truth. We are to live according to the truth. We are to be honest and trustworthy and full of integrity. We are to live in, in goodness and righteousness and truth, meaning that we reflect the goodness and the character of God and the truth of His Word in our lives. And the more we live according to the truth of His Word, the more we re will reflect these qualities. Some of the ladies are memorizing Ephesians 5, and I'm thankful that they're doing this. I'm thankful for their work because they're saturating themselves with the Word of God, and that is the only way that we can truly reflect the goodness, righteousness, and truth of God.
Look quickly at verse 10. I think this may be the most applicable verse in the sermon. Paul says, trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. It's incredibly interesting verse. The phrase trying to learn is translated from a word that means prove or test. The New King James Version says or translates it, finding out what is pleasing to the Lord. You see, we need to realize that we're constantly growing in maturity in Christ. Uh, We should be constantly growing in maturity in Christ. We should be growing as Christians. Our way of life and thinking at the beginning of our Christian walk should look much different than it will after years of being in Christ. Now, I shudder to think of my own early days as a Christian. I was an immature mess, but God has been faithful over the years to grind down many of the rough edges. He continues to clean out all that old, moldy trash. He continues to renew my mind by the word of truth. And by His grace, I'll continue to grow in my faith and my love toward Him and others as I progress in my life. And I hope, brethren, that you can see the same progress in your own life. We've seen Paul's encouragement to the church at Ephesus. He wanted them to avoid the deception of the disobedient and the wicked. He, He wanted them to realize that their deception is similar to that of the serpent in the garden. They may sound good, they may look good, but their deceptions are evil. They want us to set aside the truth of God's Word. Uh, Again, that was Satan's ploy in the garden. And the more things change, the more they stay the same. So we must consider how we live, how we can live the Christian life in a way that is pleasing to the Lord. We do so by avoiding the darkness and by walking in the light. We seek after those things which are pleasing to the Lord. The thing is, is that that word proving, I I didn't say it earlier, but it means that there's a sense that we're going to fail. Yet we we see our failure, those those. Uh, where we fall short is revealed to us and we, and we eliminate those things and we change and we move forward in, in Christ according to His Word. Let me say this as we close. If you don't know Him, then you can't please Him. If you don't know Him, then you are a son of wrath. I beg those of you who don't know Him, I beg you to come to Christ where you'll find rest and hope. Oh, these days are so going to be so difficult. I beg you to come to Christ. I beg you to walk in the light. I beg you to come to Christ where He'll give you uh, living water from the well which never runs dry. I beg you to come to Christ. He will not... Turn you away. He will not forsake you. If you're living in Christ now, I beg you to avoid the deceptions that are out there. The deceptions of the disobedient, those who are in the world, those who are in the church. I beg you to walk in the light, to to consider who you are in Christ and live like that. Live in the light. Let your light shine before men so that they may see your good works and glorify God the Father. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning 
It's early afternoon. I pray for our church. I pray for the folks here today, for those listening online. I pray that we as a church would avoid the disobedient, not be deceived. I pray that we would walk in the light in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. I pray that we would work to learn what is pleasing to you as we grow in maturity, as we grow in our love for you, as we grow closer to you. We praise you for all these things. In Christ's name, amen.